President George Washington was given a mule from the King of Spain. Thomas Jefferson was given four horses from the ambassador for Tunisia. Andrew Jackson, president, was given a 1,400-pound wheel of cheese from a dairy farmer in New York. Rutherford B. Hayes was given a hand-carved desk from the, uh, from the leadership in Britain. John F. Kennedy was given a little dog from Nikita Khrushchev of the Soviet Union. George W. Bush, president, was given inline skates from the Dutch prime minister. A lot of gifts that get given to the presidents. Article 1, Section 9 of the U.S. Constitution prohibits the United States president from receiving any personal gift from heads of state of another nation. Uh, they belong then to the country, not to the president individually. And the reason is it's, there's a fear that it will start to influence the president as far as how he views other people and other nations. It's called the Foreign Gifts and Decorations Act of 1966. And any gifts that are given to the president or his wife that exceed $180 while he or she, he or she is in office um, has to be given to the National Archives when they leave office. So any gift above that, unless it's from a relative. Apparently that's okay. It's common for those who, who attend the White House and have been invited to come to the White House to, to bring gifts. And uh, they estimate that probably more than half the people that are invited for special events often bring gifts for the president. And what would you possibly bring if you were invited to go meet the most powerful man or woman someday in the world? What gift in your treasure chest might you take with you? as, a, as a, a nice offering to them, as a gift to them. Any gift that someone gives, even if you're buying Christmas presents right now or you're going to be maybe in the next few weeks, any gift that someone gives is ultimately, it, it represents a sacrifice on your part, sacrifice of your money or time or your talent or something that, that you now put forward to them as a, as a representation of your appreciation or love or whatever. So what about when we go into God's presence? What about when his king, the son of God, arrives here in the world? What gift might you want to bring to him? What possession do you have in your treasure chest that would be a wonderful gift to bring to this king? What might be the best way to show your love and appreciation for all the things that God has done for you in your life? Now, if as a child of God, as a believer in Christ, you have many, many possible gifts to draw from in the treasure chest. I'll just read through some of the ones that, that you might want to offer him. The regular worship in your life. You're sitting here doing that right now. Loving to hear God's word. Caring about his word. Wanting to apply his commandments to your life. Being careful how you live your life as a Christian and how you go through your life. Watching maybe how you use your language, maybe eliminating certain words out of your vocabulary that others like to use. Maybe, maybe giving offerings and gifts to support the spread of the church and mission work. Maybe keeping your sexual purity until you get married someday. Using your talents, your 
artistic gifts or musical gifts or athletic gifts, using your talents in life to somehow give glory to God. Maybe even going so far as to individually try to spread the gospel and, and um, speak words of evangelism to people in hopes of convincing them to, to come and listen to God's word. Maybe going into the public ministry or working at a Christian college, maybe for, maybe for a little less than you'd make out in the, another part of the world. It's a lot of different treasury gifts that we can offer to God out of our treasure box of our lives. And all of these are wonderful things. And they're all things that we could and should feel some pride about, that, that God has worked these things in our lives and desire in our hearts to want to do this. But our text is an interesting text. I want to read it again. Listen to what David says to God. You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. God wants you to first bring a completely different gift than we might expect. The greatest gift that you and I can bring to God is a humble recognition of how sinful we are. A humble recognition of how often we have failed to keep his commandments and follow them the way we should. And along with this, to, to have a recognition not only of our guilt, of, but how dependent we have to be on his mercy and on his grace. This is God's first and foremost true definition of religion. Now, in the context of this psalm, King David has fallen into a horrible sin. And we probably all know about that, recorded for us in Scripture. But God has him write this psalm to teach us this tremendous spiritual lesson about our faith and how we relate to God. And about what offering that we bring to God really matters the most to him. We are inclined to think that the sacrifices and offerings that we can bring out of our treasure chest to God are, are what he wants the most. But if you think about it, everything that I described in that list earlier, he already owns those. He owns all your money, your talents, your abilities, your gifts, the faith that's in your heart that causes you to want to follow his word and support the work of it. He owns it all already. It already belongs to him. Even the burnt offerings that God himself commanded people to do in the Old Testament worship life even those things are irrelevant apart from the greater offering of a penitent heart that realizes how much we need his forgiveness and his grace. Now, there are two types of contrition. That means to feel sorry for your sin. There's two types of contrition. You can think of it this way. Your worst enemy may try to convince you that you are dying in order to torment you, or your doctor who cares about you may try to convince you that you're dying only to help you to see how badly you need a cure and a remedy that he has. Satan's contrition is a contrition that leads to despair, and that's what Judas felt. A recognition of his sin that was so strong and overwhelming that it caused him to run away from Christ and end his own life. Years ago, I had a woman who was a member of a church of mine. I sat down to meet with her and she told me she hadn't been to church for the longest time, and she told me, I can't go to church because I'm just too sinful. 
I'm too wicked. That's like saying I'm too sick to go to the hospital. This is what church is about. It's what God's grace and the whole ministry is about. The Holy Spirit has a type of contrition, though, that he can work in our hearts that leads us back to Christ and back to the cross, just as he did with Peter. Martin Luther calls this the middle way, the middle way to feel contrite about your sins and recognize them and at the same time not fall down into the ditch of despair. And here's why. The king that is coming, the king that has come and is promising to return and who comes to you right now even through word and sacrament, that king is bringing the greatest gift and that is grace and mercy and forgiveness. So no matter how often you've fallen into a particular sin that troubles your conscience, no matter how long it's been connected to you in your life, no matter how deep and horrible and depressing it would be to think about how awful some of your sins are, know this, that the King who is coming and comes to you now in word and sacrament covers them all with his grace and with his mercy. The gift that he looks for the most is a contrite heart. And here's the neat thing. When that primary gift that God is requiring of you, when that is brought and given, all of a sudden, all the other gifts in the box, in your treasury, look so much brighter and more beautiful to him. God be praised for his grace in this coming king. Amen.